Well, good evening, saints. Tonight, we're going to be covering chapters 11 and 12. We want to tell you that there are truly special things stored up for us tonight in the chapters that we're going to cover. Our Heavenly Father, in all of His mercy, wisdom, and power, has brought us right where we need to be. Almost as if His Spirit is leading us and helping us. No, that's right. This evening will address our time and our circumstances. By the end of the evening, you'll have a better picture of the coming restoration of God's bride, as well as powerful action items from the life of Jeremiah. You guys want both? Yes. We're going to cover theology, and we're also going to cover the nitty-gritty practical details of what we're going to do today and tomorrow. In light of that, I think that it's best that we start out by reading Psalm 118. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Before we begin, we want to pray and pray until we feel the Spirit of God moving and asking Him to open our eyes to the wonderful things that are in His law right there before us that we just need to discover. Is anybody in the room feel particularly stirred to stand and pray until we feel the presence of God. Father, this body belongs to you, Lord. Oh God, we belong to you, and we are on a warpath, mighty God. Father, would you move us tonight, Lord? Or would you cause our hearts to be engaged? But with what your heart is engaged with, mighty God, Lord, open our eyes that we would see the wonderful things in your law, Father. Lord, impact us, Lord God, with how you feel about the nations, Lord. Impact us with how you feel about your word, mighty God. Move every single person in this body to Shema, mighty God. Lord God, we don't want to just know it, Father. Lord God, we want to experience, Lord. Lord, this body belongs to you, but we say that we are yours. Lord, move us by your word and by your spirit, Father. Lord, may the gospel be preached for through these men, Lord, with boldness and with confidence, Father, with your words that are coming straight from heaven, Lord. Lord, we give this time to you, Lord, we humble ourselves before you and before your word, Lord, we say, speak to us, Lord, what you want to say, mighty God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Father, you are a perfect God. Father, your perfections, Lord, they have touched us. Lord, your faithfulness has reached even us, mighty God. Even us dirty Gentiles, Lord, you have reached us with your goodness and your grace. Lord, would you move us in this place tonight according to your character and your goodness, Lord. Lord God, would we be moved for what moves your heart? Lord God, and would your word hit its mark in each and every one of us tonight? In your name, Father. Amen. Brother Linton, will you read chapter 11 all the way through 12 for us? This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who does not obey the terms of this, the terms of this covenant, the terms that I commanded your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt. Out of the iron smelting furnace, I said, Obey me and do everything I command you, and you will be my people and I will be your God. Then I will fulfill the oath I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. 
I answered, Amen, Lord. The Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Listen to the terms of this covenant and follow them. From the time I brought your forefathers up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, saying, Obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I commanded them to follow, but that they did not keep. Then the Lord said to me, There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their forefathers, who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods whom they, they burn incense. But they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. You have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. And the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them, because I will not listen when they call to me, call to me in the time of their distress. What is my beloved doing in, in my temple as she works out her evil scheme with many? Can consecrated meat avert your punishment? When you engage in your wickedness, then you rejoice? The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with, the, with, with fruit beautiful in form. But with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire, and its branches will be broken. The Lord Almighty who planted you has decreed disaster for you, because the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done evil and provoked me to anger by burning incense to Baal. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut them off. Let us cut them off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But O Lord Almighty, you who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the men of Anathoth who are seeking your life and saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish them. Their young men will die by the sword. Their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them. Because I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, I will speak with you about your justice. Why do the ways of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless, li faithless live at ease? You have planted them, but they have, and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched, and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked, the animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, He will not see what happens to us. 
if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? Mm. If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickest by the Jordan? Wow. Your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. I will forsake my house, abandon the, my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, therefore I hate her. <laughs> has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey that other birds of prey surround and attack? Go and gather all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds will, will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Over all the buried heights in the desert, destroyers will swarm. For the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other. No one will be safe. They will sow wheat but reap thorns. They will wear themselves out but gain nothing. So bear the shame of your harvest because of the Lord's fierce anger. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands, and I will uproot the houses of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to his own inheritance and his own country. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot it, uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. Man, what a couple chapters, huh? Yeah. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with the horses? Man, I promise you that there are so many sermons and commentaries written on that one verse alone that the whole world couldn't contain the books that are written. I promise you tonight, you are going to come away with a totally different perspective on that verse. There's an amazing thing that happens, come on Acts 1, when you put a verse in context and you begin to read it with the view of the original audience. Amen. So we're going to get into chapter 11. And uh, go ahead and pick up in verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell the people, tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who does not obey the terms of this covenant. Now before we dig in, we want you to notice how God refers to the covenant in verse 2. Did you catch that? Listen to the terms of these covenants. No. Come on now. Not these covenants. Not plural. It says listen to the words of this covenant. Well, which covenant is he referring to? Yes. If you were with us these last few weeks, you might have heard us teaching in Jeremiah chapter 4. That there is one singular covenant that was given to Israel that spanned many years through many patriarchs. 
We hear all of the time about the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, <laughs> when in fact they are really just one promise that was given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, and they were all building successively. Say successively. Successively. Uh, they were building successively upon each other, and they connect with one another to form one covenant. These are not different covenants that you can dissect and take them apart individually. These all form one covenant to one family. Each new addition did not replace nor abrogate the previous. It all built upon its predecessor, which originally came from who? Abraham. Everything hinges and is built upon the promise that is given to Abraham. Now come on, Acts 2. The man, the land, and the plan. Now, check out verse 3 with us for a moment. Do you notice that in verse 3, God is proclaiming a curse? Did you see the dichotomy between verse 2 and verse 3? God is referring to the terms that he gave to his people as a means of course correction. Somebody say course correction. Course Course correction. correction. Because the word again and again and again confirms that the Lord will never completely destroy his people Israel. He gave his people a means of course correction to help them so that they would be able to inherit the promise contained within the covenant. He always wanted them to have the ability to walk according to his laws and obedience. These terms were initiated by God in a husband-wife kind of contract called a ketubah in Hebrew. It's a marriage contract for his bride who was and is Israel. We're going to take a look at Exodus 19. So keep your hand where you are in Jeremiah 11. Turn with us to Exodus 19. We're going to start in verse 3. Say ketubah when you get there. Ketubah. Oh, that's, that's maybe about, I don't know. Oh, uh, come on. Don't be scared. We're all pronouncing it wrong. Somebody say ketubah for me. Arouse thyself. We're going to look at the initiation of this ketubah between the husband, the Lord, and his wife, the nation of Israel. And it starts right here in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This is marriage type of language here. Hey, you saw how I rescued you from your oppressors. You saw how I destroyed those who had afflicted you. The nation of Israel as God's bride, they saw the mighty acts of their husband. They saw his character. They saw what he did to free them. Continue in verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, where are they again when this is occurring? Where, where is Moses? Where is the Lord? They're on, they're on, okay. They're on a mountain, right? And the people are sitting there and they're hearing the mighty acts of the Lord. They're beginning to recognize, oh my goodness, who is this King of Kings and Lord of Lords? 
you know, as he speaks, the mountain shakes. Yeah. You know, when he talks, there's storms that come wow. as, as his voice projects forth. Wow. Uh, we're literally seeing signs in the heavens. And who is this God? One thing that Israel was gated in the revelation of in this time, during this Ketubah, is I am not like this God. <laughs> but I want to be. Come on. They were comparing their character to the character of Yahweh God, and they were getting the revelation. This is not me, but this is something that I want to grow to become. Come on. As a nation, hope in Israel is beginning to rise in them. The hope arising that they can and that they will be made like the Lord if they follow Him. Judah's going to continue in verse 7 for us. Verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. Mm. So Moses brought back their answer to the Lord. So saints... They've seen a mighty God and great acts. They've recognized that he is different than they are, but they want to be like him. They begin to respond rightly to the offer that has been put before them. After seeing the deliverance, after hearing of what the Lord would make them into, they say that they want to follow him. They commit to obeying him. They commit to going where he goes like a bride to a husband. Keep that in mind as we read verse 9 and 10. Probably through 11 too. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Third day. Mm. Because on that day... The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. After they had committed to him, the Lord consecrates the entire nation. Somebody say the whole thing. The whole thing. And he promises to visit them after three days where there's a kind of consecration going on. Where something of their old way of life is being washed and renewed and they're being prepared to meet their king. Their salvation their marriage, the initiation of the covenant with the Lord. All of this began when they saw His mighty acts. They saw what kind of God He was and they committed themselves to obey Him and they were visited by Him. This is the same way that our salvation, our marriage, covenant begins with the Lord. Seeing His mighty acts and His good character. But notice, they committed to Him before they even knew the terms of the covenant. They heard the outcome that they would be made into something, but they didn't hear all of the method by which they would be made into something. Now, I know there's no one in here that's ever rationally committed to something before you knew the terms and conditions. I want to tell you tonight, though, there is one right decision that must be made without hearing all of the terms and conditions. This happened before the law of God was given. And the same thing happened to us at the cross. We saw God's mighty acts in His right hand. We saw His character and compared it to all of the things that we previously served. And we realized we were not like Him, but we wanted to be. He revealed Himself to us. 
and he begins to make us into him. And the necessity of obedience is the vehicle by which he makes us like him. When you came to him, you didn't know what all it would entail, but you knew you wanted to be something other than what you had been. Saints, this is so much like marriage. When you see a young couple that has no idea what they're about to embark on, but they're becoming something as they go through it. See, this is the necessity of the cross. This is what it is to be in a covenant with God. We emphatically and excitedly committed to him, but we had no idea where you would be 10, 20, 30 years later. This is how salvation begins for every believer, then and now. You're recognizing that God is good and he will make something out of you. All that he requires from us is blind obedience. Except it's not blind. He told you in advance he was going to make something out of your life. Look, this brings us to Luke 9, 22. I'm going to read it to you. Just listen carefully as I'm going and Justin will comment. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Mm. Then he said to them all, if anyone, if anyone Anyone. would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? So in this passage in Luke 9, Peter's experiencing a situation that is like Sinai. Jesus just asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter is experiencing a revelation just like Israel did at Sinai. And this is what Jesus goes on to say after Peter gives his answer. After rejection of those who should have received Jesus, the Lord would raise him in three days in the sight of all his disciples. That correlates to what God did on Sinai when he said in three days, on the third day, I will visit you. But then Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me. Man, how many times have you heard a message preached on this? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This has always been the call of salvation. Come on. No matter what the televangelist on TV have said, come and just be blessed by the Lord. Come and just pray a prayer or receive the love of Christ. <laughs> this has always been the call of salvation. To come and die. To deny yourself. Yeah. But there's something that goes along with that. We commit to that as Christians. We hear the call. And we like Peter... We, like the men at Sinai, we see the revelation of who he is, and that's what draws us near to him. That's the gates of praise. We see who he is, and we want to be like him. We know that where we came from is pretty darn bad, but he is the ultimate goal of the entire world's salvation, and we must have it. We want to escape the trap of sin. We want to be like him. We hear the things when we got saved. God's speaking to you what he will make you into. And then in hearing all of those things, we commit to him. And we excitedly say, yes, I will deny myself. I will take up my cross daily. 
But there's something with that that you don't understand. What you don't understand is that you don't understand what that's going to cost you in the future. You say, yes, I want to be made like you. I want to deny myself. But you have no idea of understanding what that might cost you in a year. What that might cost you in five years. What that might cost you in ten years. Has anybody in this room found that the cost is higher than when you previously made the commitment? Man, I got to tell you that the commitment to him is the absolute surrender to his lordship. Even though you do not know the terms of the covenant. This is normal Christianity to look at him and say, yes, I'm going to commit to you because I want what you have. And even though I don't know what that means for me, I'm still going to do it anyway. When Jesus speaks about denying yourself, taking up your cross and losing your life, you can't possibly know what that what that includes fully on the day that you're committing yourself to him. This is exactly like a marriage works. You make a covenant with your spouse, but you have no idea what that's going to look like, what that's going to entail, what that's going to have to cause you to surrender in the future. Look, on a side note, as Nick continues, for many of you, it's cost you much more than you would have thought, particularly having your first experience with the Lord in an environment where they lied to you and said nothing was ever going to happen. You just prayed a prayer and you were done. Like we stand up on the altar, walk out, and that's the end of marriage. Have you also found... The God's God, it's not. God's power has been at work in you in a way that was more than was previously iterated to you. Yeah. See, there are two sides to this coin. There was a lot more required in the life ahead, and there's a lot more of the power of God that can be moving and interacting with you. Yeah. Each day is an opportunity to interact with this. So I got a question for you. So in this beginning of this year, 2021, I want you to raise your hand. If more has been required of you by the Lord yeah. this year than in the years previous. Both hands. Yes. I Come on. Hands for that. This should be one of the most comforting things of the night. One of the most comforting revelations of the night. That you are walking on that ancient path. And you're learning how to do it more and more as the days go by. As more revelation comes... You get more of an opportunity to rise to the occasion. Come on. You get more of an opportunity to sacrifice. You get more of, a, more of an opportunity to give your life in a denial of yourself for the sake and the glory of your king. And that's what this is all about. That's what, that was what the original call in your life was all about. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow the king of kings, not knowing what's going to happen. Just knowing that we wanted to be like him. So we're going to follow him wherever he goes. Yeah. Hey, you know how short this life is? Yeah. We don't have any time to waste. No. We've got a, a short few days and years to give to the king. This is really a test in time to see what eternity is going to look like. Victorious or something else. What we're doing in this season, in these first hundred days is getting on that ancient path and making sure that every man and every family who wants to be there has a chance to get there, has a chance to get the revelation, has a chance to fully give it all to the king and join us. Man, come on, let's do this thing together. we got places to go. This means that there is also an increase of his lordship 
in your life. Come on, Pastor oh, Matt. What on. do you know about his lordship in your life? Pastor Matt, he's got a testimony of lordship, which, which plunged him into this concept of walking with the Lord in the kingdom and him being the Lord of his life. Every new step, it brings an opportunity to make good on our vow. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. That every day as we deny ourselves and take up our cross and we follow the Lord, we have a daily opportunity to make good on the vow that said, Lord, I am denying myself and I'm following you. You are more of a Lord in my life today than you were last week. Yeah. <laughs> Israel, they themselves as a nation, they didn't have a one-time transaction with the Lord at Sinai. And neither do we as a grafted in bride. They had a lifelong commitment to obedience. And it was supposed to mature in lordship over time. And this is what we are experiencing right now. Yeah. This is not a new teaching. It, it's not a new revelation to have a relationship with the Lord that always was this way from the beginning. But we want you to know tonight and we want to highlight to you that stopping along the way it is indeed breaking your vow. Come on. You see, if it's not a one-time transactional occurrence then that means that if he wants more lordship tomorrow, then he gets more lordship tomorrow. Come on. That's the answer. The answer is yes, before our Lord and Savior even asks us the question. Yeah. Just to make sure that you're connecting the dots, Brother Linton, would you read verse 3 of Jeremiah 11 for me? <laughs> Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who does not obey the terms of this covenant. Cursed is the man. Is anybody in the room? Can you say that sounds bad? Yeah. The other side of it is that there are blessings associated with the covenant. This is not a one-time transaction, as we said, but I'm going to just put it in some more blatant, blatant terms. It's a marriage, not a prostitution arrangement. So you have a marriage with vows that must be kept. Any moment that you fail to deny yourself, to lose your life, to pick up your cross, is you throwing down your marriage. Trying to pick it back up again when you need something. When you hit that point in the day when you recognize you've been operating in your flesh and it's now costing you something. Yeah, yeah that's called prostitution. <laughs> hey, I need you. I need something from you. A marriage is you're walking together because you want to walk together. Come on now. Because you want to be like him. You want to be with him. Yeah. Like these situations present themselves in the lives of believers and increasing measure as you continue to follow the Lord. Look, we want to say it does not decrease in intensity. It does not get easier. But you do find more of his power working in you because yes. you're becoming like him. Yes. The point was never for it to be easier for your flesh. The point was for your flesh to die and you become a new man. That's what it means to be born again or born from above. Not who you were used to be, but who you were becoming. Look, we want to go ahead and take Abraham as an example. I'm going to pick up in Romans 4, 20 and read through 21. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Before we hit verse 21, I want you to think about the call of Abraham. Consider this for a moment. Leave your father's house and go to the land I will show you. Yeah. Did Abraham know all of the details? No. <laughs> he didn't even have a GPS pen. He was just told, leave and go to the land that I will show you. 
Okay, so which direction do I start walking? Where is the land? He started with the immediate act of obedience, not knowing everything that would come, but that he had interacted with a God he wanted to become like. This is the definition of faith. He did not waver in it through unbelief regarding the promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. We will learn to be strengthened in our faith in this house, to learn to contend when we don't know the outcome, but we know what is right regardless. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And Abraham was an example to us. He knew less than we did. And yet he walked in faithfulness. We have had more of the marriage covenant revealed. More of God's righteous commands and decrees. As Peter put it, our hope and our promise has been made more certain, not less. Even Father Abraham would have been cursed at any point in time that he stopped following the Lord. If he gave up, decided I'm going back to my father's house, this is too complicated. He would not be the father of the faithful. But he is because he was fully persuaded. What we want to cultivate tonight is a fully persuaded faith. The kind that Abraham, that Jeremiah, that the old wine had in us. Consider 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 14. It says, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work now i gotta say to you that wood hay and straw that's what you produce when you cease to listen to the voice of lordship in your life and choose to be self-directed instead when we take abraham as our example man i gotta say we have shared that scripture so many times and yet i see so few men and women that actually put that kind of faith into practice The commitment to the Lord, even though you might not know what he's going to require, is absolutely staggering. And yet Abraham did not stagger. He was unwavering in every situation. Every time a commitment was required, he went right into it without staggering. That's incredible, isn't it? Man, you might, you have to ask yourself, if in five years God says for you to uproot your family and go to a foreign country... That might not be something you expected, huh? What about if five years God tells you that you're not supposed to go to a country, that you're supposed to stay here and be a pillar in this church? Would that be unexpected? See, it doesn't matter. In either case, no matter what God says in the moment, if you refuse to listen to his voice of lordship in your life and be self-directed, this is what I want, so this is what I'm going to do, that is decreasing lordship in your life, and that's wood, hay, and straw. Gold, silver, and costly stones are what you produced in the costly moments. Say costly moments. Costly moments. Of obeying the Lord over the span of a lifetime. You don't make gold in a moment, nor does silver and costly stones come from just putting things in a fire. It comes from daily, monthly, yearly listening to the Lord in those costly moments and obeying what he's saying regardless of whether you expected it or not. Believing church, this is speaking to the believing church, not the lost. Come on. You are going to build something in your life. Whether it's wood, hay, straw, stubble, or gold, silver, and costly stones, all of us will build something. And the big shock, you ready for it? You might not know what you're building until that day comes and reveals it with fire. 
How about we pray and listen to the voice of lordship in our life so that we can hear it now and know what we're building. Amen. Amen. Hey, Ezekiel 18.24 is a crucial passage on this topic. But if a righteous man turns from his unrighteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. Look, the moment you stop along the way, think about what Ezekiel 18 is saying here. The moment that the righteous man turns from righteousness and commits sin. What is sin? The good you, ought to, the good you know you ought to do and you don't do it. Those moments of obedience that you know you're supposed to do and don't do it. The moment you stop along that path is the moment that the Lord forgets your previous commitment. You may have made that commitment 10 years ago, but it doesn't matter in God's eyes if you stop your commitment in that moment. Look, it's an important point. The Lord is not interested in your action alone. Lots of people, they run around doing great things, handing out food left and right, creating these monstrosities that are intended to feed the poor all over the earth. What God is interested in is the obedience that he required of you. As sons, if he tells his sons, I want you to go clean the garage, and you're like, but dad, but dad, I mowed the lawn, I washed your car, I did these 13 other things I felt like doing, that is not at all the same thing. What we want you to have is a life that is focused. One that is not distracted by every leaf blowing in the wind, but one that knows the path God has called you to. That's why we preach about things like a mezuzah statement. That's why we talk about a family banner. We must build with costly stone, as Justin said. Ezekiel 18, 21 through 23 is the other side of the coin. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps on my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. Man, I don't know when you had that revelation or if you still need one tonight. But when you have it, turn. Do it immediately. He will not die, praise the living God. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, I am not pleased when they turn from their evil. Am I not pleased when they turn from their evil ways and live? Look, both sides of this coin are true, but what the living God is looking for is for men who will return to the commitment they originally made. Not busy themselves with false pretenses, with religion and fig leaves. Look, we're going to read a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I've got to tell you what a man yeah. that, that man was. Yeah. We're going to read this, and this is about lordship in the life of a Christian. It says the cross is laid on every Christian, not those that want to take it, not those that choose to take it. Every Christian, it's not an option. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this present world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. Did you hear as we embark on discipleship? That's a lifelong process. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. 
The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And when Christ calls a man, he calls him for a lifetime. It's a marriage. Come on. It is a marriage of living with him and dying with him daily. Amen? Amen. We're going to pick up in verse 4. As we get there, considering those words, if you find yourself dying in areas as you're stretching out a new ministry, congratulations, that's what it's supposed to be like. Yeah. That is a sign of progress because you're purchasing costly stone to build with. Yeah. If it's costing you something to rise to the occasion to what is being set before us, that means you are exactly where you should be. But if it's easier, if you're hiding while others are bearing the load, that's a huge indicator that you need to reassess what you're building with. Get verse 4 through 6 for us. The terms I commanded your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron smelting furnace, I said, obey me and do everything I command you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Then I will fulfill the oath I swore to your forefathers to give them the land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. I answered, Amen, Lord. The Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Listen to the terms of this covenant and follow them. Man, thank you, Verse 4. I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron smelting furnace. That should bring to mind some of the studies that we've done and some of the different uh, seasons that Israel has gone through through this iron smelting furnace that the Lord's talking about. It was Egypt, absolutely. But it's also in stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and One Bad Negro. <laughs> I mean Abednego. Magnum Bola. It's also... <laughs> Can't wait for me to hear that. From the beginning... Of the marriage, all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation, we see it time and time again. That iron smelting furnace is what the bride of Christ is going through for refinement. We start in this place. We start in refinement. At the very beginning with our relationship with the Lord. We continue in refinement. We end in refinement. It's almost like He wants us to be refined... And the vehicle of obedience he uses to bring us into the iron smelting furnace. Yeah. But it's not just a one-time occurrence. This isn't just a one-time, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to just, I'm going to grin and bear it for a little while, and I'm going to get out of there, and then I can start doing what I want to do again. Christ is after a refined bride. And the way that he refines his bride is through that heat of the iron smelting furnace. That's how he does it. So it's not a one and done like we were talking about earlier. It's more of a hop from one to the next, to the, to the next, to the next. And as that iron smelting furnace refines us, then we get the discernment and we get the image of Christ more and more birthed into each one of us. That's exciting. The obedience that the nation of Israel pledged in the Mosaic portion of this one covenant, it was a pledge to refinement that brought the promise. You see, we can be confident as we're being refined that because it is the hand of our Father, that refinement will 
bring His promises about in our lives. It's when we try to jump out of the iron-smelting furnace that we get ourselves in trouble. It's when we try to avoid those moments of refinement for something that's just a little bit easier. That is when His bride gets Himself in trouble. You can't get to the goal without the increase in refinement and obedience that we are plunging headlong into as a yeah, church. Not possible. I want to bring you to verse 5. Jeremiah's response. Jeremiah's response was ringing in our souls tonight as we were reading this. Jeremiah said, Amen, Lord. Amen, Lord. Whatever your conclusion was, whatever your judgment was, Amen. So be it unto you, mighty God. This reminds us of the response of an Israelite named Nathaniel, in whom there was no guile, there was no corruption, there was no deceit. This is also the response of the saints in Revelation. Just and true are your judgments, O God. No matter what they were watching happen, and no matter what iron smelting furnace was coming next, they were crying out, just and true, God, are your judgments. May it be so. Yes and amen, mighty king. Amen. Let's continue in verse 7, Linto. From the time I brought your forefathers up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, saying, Obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So I brought on, I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I commanded them to follow, but they did not keep. Then the Lord said to me, There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. Wow. They return to the sins of their forefathers who refuse to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. All right. So I know you had to notice that God told Jeremiah there is a conspiracy among the people. Yeah. Now, conspiracy is an interesting word. Aaron these days and times. When I hear the word conspiracy, it's usually associated with aliens or Area 51 or something ridiculous like the Illuminati or ammo shortages or anything else that you would like to discuss. That's not what God's talking about, though. Acts 1 students, you remember the term semantic drift? Yeah, well, in our day and time, we're experiencing semantic drift with the term conspiracy. I want to just go ahead and show you a slide that is the Hebrew word behind the English here. A masculine noun indicating a conspiracy, a treason. To begin to think of a coup, an uprising. It refers to binding together, unifying, coming together, making a team of persons for hostile reasons. So it implies in the word itself that there's a unity that's based upon rebellion, just to begin with. It shows up in areas like Absalom against David, or Zimri who conspired against his master, and you hear Jezebel crying about it later. The idea here is that this is not a fearful story that is running on the news. This is people coming together because they want to do something other than what God has laid out for them. In most biblical dictionaries, you will notice three parts that make up a conspiracy. It is secretive and it is deceptive. The second is it is aimed at an overthrow of a higher power, whether one instituted by God on the earth or God himself. Yeah. 
It involves entities that are collaborating with each other to a hostile end or purpose. Look, for further study, you can see this illustrated clearly in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire? In Psalm 83, the nations are skillful at deception. They're banding together and they're aiming at overthrowing God's establishment on earth. They join forces in an attempt to summon the amount of force that is needed. They believe that if they all get together, maybe they can overthrow him. In Jeremiah, the conspiracy is formed by the people of God. That hurts. Meditate on that for just a moment. It's the people of God that are forming the conspiracy. They pledge obedience with their lips while planning and practicing disobedience, as it says. You remember Jeremiah started his ministry during the revival of Josiah? Where Israel got turned upside down and back to the Lord. And now there's a conspiracy where men are banding together to turn away from him. Now, they do this against the Lord first. Clearly, that is what's happening in the chapter, if you read it line by line. But it would later be applied to Jeremiah. They're going to form a conspiracy against him as well. How they feel about the Lord is going to show up in how they feel about his servants. When relatives are kind to your face and yet hate you, it's because they hate the Lord. Now, when you have no problems hanging out with relatives that hate the Lord, that also says something about you. His servants are a reflection of him and how an individual, how a people, how a nation feel about God will always show up like a mirror and how they feel about his servants. Yeah. Let's get verse 11 through 14. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods whom they burn, to whom they burn incense. But they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. Mm. You have as many gods as you have towns of Judah. And, all, and the altars you have set up to burn incense, incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Do not pray for this people nor offer any plea or petition for them. Good. Because I will, I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their distress. Man, so much for the loving God of the Bible. So much for that gentle Hallmark card, Psalm 23 kind of God that we have heard about our whole lives. Just a lamb. God is literally going to bring judgment on them and then just listen to them while they cry out and turn off the hearing aids, so to speak. He's just not going to listen. And he's telling Jeremiah, you don't listen to them either. If they cry out to you, don't pray for these people. Don't offer any plea or petition. So much for your evangelism theology. God wants to reach everybody. Well, I don't think so. The truth is here is that God will not aid a son that is bent on going wayward. He will not do that. He will not reach out to them. God will not try to twist their arm and uh, coerce them with Girl Scout cookies and pizza to get them to come to youth groups. He will not aid a son that is bent on going wayward. Just receive his love. He won't take a text from them. He won't take a phone call from them. If they want to go wayward, he's not going to help them along the way. It doesn't matter what the son has experienced in the past. This is a moment where lordship is beginning to collapse in this son. Now, God in this passage is making it very clear. Say very clear. Very, very clear. clear. So that none of you 
think it's unclear. He's making it very clear that the judgment is unavoidable. At this point, nothing can stop it. No prayer, nothing that that person can do can stop the judgment. Israel cannot stop it at this point. And God will not allow the conspiracy to stand. He will not allow his people Come to on. band together against him. He won't, listen to me, he won't allow people who profess to know them with their lips and yet are bent on disobedience to conspire against Ooh. him. Now this judgment that's coming, it's going to show the hollowness of the repentance. You ask yourself, how did it get to this point? Why is God so angry? Well, it's because the repentance has not worked. If it did, judgment wouldn't be coming. But the judgment itself shows the hollowness of the repentance. God at this point is not open to further discussion in his conversation with Jeremiah. He's just not open to it. He's saying, I'm not going to listen to him anymore. The truth that we want you to get is when judgment is unavoidable, no further conversation or plea with God can change his mind. No prayer or conversation will amend what God has decreed already. So if you have an auntie, you have an uncle, and man, you just really love this auntie or an uncle, but as many times as you tried to tell them about the gospel, they stiff arm you in the face. Well, I'm not saying stop trying. I'm saying you've got to get into God's throne room and hear what he says about the matter. Amen. Because God might already be giving them over. And when you find yourself praying for something that's not God's will, oh, man. well, I don't think I need to tell you what that means about the lordship in your life. Wow. Guys, we are like Jeremiah in this scenario. We are priests of the Most High God. That is who you are. Therefore, it is your responsibility to represent him, not just in speech, but also in actions, in your prayer time, walking through the tabernacle as you get to the altar of incense, making sure that you have his heart, and particularly in the help and support that we do or that we do not provide to the people that we come into contact with. Here's a truth for you tonight from this passage in Jeremiah. Continuing to assist, aid, or abed a family member or friend who is persisting to go their own way makes you liable to the same judgment that is coming upon them. That's the revelation that we receive from the Lord about this scripture. If you force it and force it and force it, and well, maybe if I just... Pray some more. Maybe if I just force my way through this a little bit more, then maybe God will listen. You need to know what God's heart about the matter is. You need to pray through the tabernacle and understand how he feels about the situation. Because if you keep being forceful about something that he is not being forceful about, you might find yourself on the same tracks as that person that you're praying for. You might find yourself becoming a co-conspirator. That's because you are God's representation on the earth. Look, we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. But I want to say clearly, those of you that are in Acts class, you're going to be learning about levels of interpretation. Yeah. This is not a mystical revelation. You're going to find out quite clearly in the coming chapters as well as other places. When Jeremiah is praying for something he shouldn't be, God allows him to have experiences that change his prayer so he gets on the same page. I'm just telling you in advance, it would be better to get on the same page with God rather than letting him ex- 
expose you to what is needed for you to get on the right page. Yeah, praise God. One other thing we want to consider is Balaam and his prayers in the book of Numbers. What is prayer? It's communication with God. It's a petition before God. It's a conversation. Balaam continuing a conversation with God after he already had an answer. You know what the result was? He was given over to what he wanted. Balaam continued to ask God about things that God didn't want to talk about because it wasn't in the purview of his plan. Mm. You know the end result of that? An angel standing ready to strike you down. So I'm summarizing a little bit of notes here that we have because we need to keep going. But quite clearly, you're demanding of the heavens something that is different than what he has already directed you to. There is a devastating result to that. I'm talking about your job. I'm talking about the spouse that you think you need right now. I'm talking about the things that you want that God hasn't told you this is what you should be aimed for. What you should be offering up loud cries, petitions day and night for is a mezuzah statement. It's the welfare of your brothers. It's the vision that God has given the church and given you personally. We're on the war path, saints. Our God is. It's time for us to focus and let a desire for unjust gain and greed in your own personal life be burned up so that you're not. Come on. Sound, good to me? Sound good to you, saints? Yes. Let's pick up in verse 15 and get through 17 now. What is my beloved doing in my temple as she works out her evil schemes with me? Can consecrated meat avert your punishment? No. When you engage in your wickedness, then you rejoice. The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with, with fruit beautiful in form. But with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire, and its branches will be broken. The Lord Almighty, who planted you, has decreed, has decreed disaster for you, because the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done evil and provoked me to anger by burning incense to Baal. Now, first thing I want you to notice is verse 15. This is marriage language through and through. What is my beloved doing in my temple my house as she works out her evil schemes with many. See, God's looking at them like a husband, and he is shocked. But I want to ask you, where is this conspiracy taking place? Oh, come on, we got to do better than that. We have our ears on? In his house, in his temple. And while it's going on, what are the people doing? They're offering consecrated meat. They're doing what seems to be right as written in the word. And yet, God's not pleased with it. Let that sink in for a second. Doing what's seemingly right, and yet God's not pleased with? Man, that, that'll preach. What they're doing is, and after they do that, God says, you engage in your wickedness, and then you rejoice. Then you rejoice. See, what they're doing is they're slapping a smile on their face. Just slapping a smile on their face and going to the altar at the socially acceptable point in the service. <laughs> they're slapping a smile, not because they're legitimately joyful about what God is doing in their life, because they're trying to deter any kind of responsibility and any type of questioning. Look at me. I'm happy. Don't look. We've never done that before, right? <laughs> now, the truth is they were called of God. They were planted and formed by God. But now because they are pledging obedience while planning on sinning, they are branches that will be broken off. I promise you there's a little bit of Romans 11 in there if you're willing to go and study that. They are branches that will be broken off. 
Now, lest you think God will eliminate his people, remember, this is his wife. He is going to break off branches, but there is always a holy root that will always be there. Right now, in this passage, Jeremiah and Baruch are the example. There has never been a time in Israel's history that there wasn't a holy root. I want you to let that sink in. Before Christ, after Christ, there has never been a singular time that the holy root did not exist. In the time of Elijah, Elijah was crying out, said, I'm the only one left. But what was God's response? I got 7,000, man. I have reserved for myself 7,000. I want to tell you that that 7,000 has always been there and it is still there today. He is more than capable of both breaking off branches and grafting in those natural branches again. He is more than capable of disciplining his bride and then accepting her whenever she is repentant. And the truth is, God will have his bride and they will both be holy and Israeli. He'll have both at the end. He's going to have his bride that he purchased in the iron smelting furnace of Egypt. Come on, 18 through 20, Linton. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at the time he sh- at that time he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Whoa, a gentle lamb led to the slaughter? Mm-hmm. Keep going. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name Hey, now you guys remember the end of last week, last Monday night, when we put those slides on the screen about the similarities between Jeremiah and Jesus, and what they were like, and how they were similar, and how their ministries were intertwined. Hey, this is another one. I was like a lamb led to the slaughter. That should be language that you recognize as uh, Jesus and what happened to him in the Gospels. What we want to hone in on here are the diseased branches. They don't want to be seen as diseased. They, they're, they're trying their hardest not to be labeled as diseased. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to try to kill what is holy. They're going to try to kill, slander, do whatever it takes to defeat what stands for the righteous decree of God. Man, how often do you see something like that? They want to destroy the holy root from which their future depends. You know, if, if we can just kill off what who actually represents the standard of God, then we look a lot better. And, you know, I think people would, would start to see us as we really want to be seen. <laughs> Not as we actually are. Or if but, I can just put down a brother who's failing, it'll make me look good. If I can just talk about what the pastors did wrong then it'll make me look a little bit better, won't it? This is just like the ministry of Jesus. This is just like the ones that were constantly trying to get him, listening to every word that he said, trying to pick it apart and make sure that they could have something to slander him by, to have some beef against him so that they could, well, kill him. Because that was what was in their hearts. It was a murderous kind of rivalry. Those same Jewish leaders, they rejected the Father first. It was long before Jesus. They had rejected the Father who was in heaven, who was the perfect God. Then they represented the Son that was sent. 
They even went so far as to try to kill Lazarus. You guys remember that? After Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, it was such a testimony to who Messiah actually was in Jesus that they said, hey, if we can kill Lazarus, maybe we can stop this thing from going on. But they were unsuccessful because the ministry of Jesus could not be disproved. How a person feels about the representatives of the Lord is how they actually feel about God. We want to make sure that you guys get that down in your souls tonight. With Jesus, it was the Judean leaders who were doing this to him. With Jeremiah, it's the men of Anathoth, the men of his own family, the priesthood that he grew up with. Like you, this is the same type of people that should be supporting you, but they're actually slandering you, and they have only negative things to say behind your back. Why don't you pick up in verse 20, and we will hear the Lord speaking and Jeremiah interacting with it. But, O Lord Almighty, you who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Remember when I told you earlier that Jeremiah would experience what the Lord had experienced and that he would get on the same page? Jeremiah, like Jesus, is now completely committed to the Lord's cause (laughs) and understanding of judgment. There's a conspiracy against God, so there is one against him now. This is like Jesus on so many different levels. We have him representing the Father, and there are ripple effects that are going out everywhere around. People are being polarized and forced to decide how they relate to the man, because the man (laughs) represents God. Jesus, in his first coming, brought repentance and forgiveness of sin. And he is coming again with vengeance and recompense in his hands. At this place in time, they have ignored the message of repentance and come around to the message of vengeance. That is the day of Jeremiah. And that is why we are studying the days of Jeremiah, because we are living in them. There is a day coming that no one can stop and that cannot be passed over. We all must give it an account. But on a personal level, we can reach that day of vengeance long before the whole world does by ignoring his word. (laughs) We also can find salvation while the world is burning around us, even if it's on a local, national kind of level. Now is the day to get right. Now is the time for salvation. Jeremiah is understanding this. He's getting with the Lord. And let's hear in verse 21 through 23 what else the Lord says. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the men of Anathoth who are seeking your life and saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hands. All right, pause right there. If you remember from our earlier chapters, Anathoth, it's a priestly town. Not a town of peasants. It's a town of men who knew the word of God and were supposed to represent him. More than a priestly town, it's Jeremiah's home town. Man, that should be familiar. Keep going, brother. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish them. Their young men will die by the sword. Their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them. Because I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. In the year of their punishment. It's almost as if there had been a day of salvation, a year of repentance, and we have moved to a place where there is vindication coming. These men knew the regulations, restrictions, and blessings of the covenant that they were willfully disobeying. More than that, they were leading other people to disobey. This is a lot like the Judean leaders whom John wrote about when Jesus told them, you will die in your sins. 
But in contrast to prostitutes and tax collectors who knew their condition, he told them that he would enter into the kingdom of God ahead of the teachers of the law because they repented and changed their ways. Saints, we cannot say enough. Knowing the word is not a substitute for doing it. In fact, the more that you know in a house like this, the more responsible you are. He's not going to leave a remnant in Anathoth, but he will leave a remnant in Israel comprised of those who know their condition and will repent and turn to the true vine. Jeremiah is one of them. What does it mean for the people who are sinning in God's house when we consider that the priest of Anathoth were more responsible and not less? Judgment's coming on the whole nation, but he singled them out saying, I will not leave anyone. Consider what it means for us to sin in an environment like this, knowing what we know. Your neighbors on your left and right know more about the word than any average Christian you will walk in to meet. We have a higher responsibility. Judgment falls on leadership first. It falls on the house of God and those who teach have a stricter judgment. I promise you that's a scary thing for us that drives us to prayer. Look, in chapter 11, God is speaking to Jeremiah about the certainty of the judgment that is to come. And Justin's going to help us bridge the gap between 11 and 12. Because you're going to need a little help to do it. I promise. 12's got some intense stuff. Listen to what he says. So in chapter 12, we're going to see Jeremiah wrestling with his current situation. And that current situation is being surrounded by wicked men with judgment pending. You see that in chapter 11. He's like, let me see the vengeance, Lord. And then he's going to have to wrestle with that because there's a time frame to that. What? So the question that Jeremiah is asking, and it's also the question we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with the time between wicked behavior and the judgment of God? I mean, what do we do with the time that we're in right now when we know the wicked will be judged, but it's just not happening yet? We have to also ask ourselves, why do the wicked prosper? We have to ask ourselves, what do I personally do with that when I see the wicked prosper? We want to tell you that the word of God has the answer, and it's in Psalm 37, verses 1 through 7. Y'all, y'all following with me? Yeah. You're going to want to get this because this is pure gold. Verse 1 says, Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Ooh. The first thing you need to know when you see the wicked prosper, they're not going to be around here for a long time. They will be gone and you won't. You will be here still. You also can't be jealous or envious of their current success. I promise you their current success doesn't reflect their future success. You also cannot fret and worry because of evil men, evil circumstances, or evil situations. You can't let that bother you. Those things will pass away. Verse 3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. You have to trust God that he has your best interest in mind. Even though you don't see it in the moment. Even though you see like he has their best interest in mind, but he doesn't. You also have to enjoy the boundary lines that he has already set for you. Oh, come on. And be satisfied for them in them. When you're not satisfied, you start looking at wicked men and saying, man, their boundary lines are better. And they're not doing what God says. Maybe I cannot do what God says either. You have to have great confidence in the placement, time, and difficulties that are before you. Because you know the outcome 
of the Father's goodness in you. Amen. Hey, verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The next step, be delighted in the fact that he will give you the desires of your heart in his own timing. He's not going to give it to you when you want it. He's not going to give it to you the same way he gave the wicked or the wicked got theirs. It's in his own timing because you're entrusted. Your desires will align with his as you delight in his refinement. The more and more you love that refinement, the more your desires will align with his and they'll be satisfied. Verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. Come on. Commit to the actions that he has already spoken to you. Commit to trusting him and removing fear. Inwardly and outwardly. Stand with your God in expectation of what he will do. Don't lose that expectation, folks. Verse 6. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn. The justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. Man, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, look, Psalm 37 tells you of what to do when you're in between wicked behavior and judgment. Psalm 73 tells you what happens if you don't stand firm in these times. You see how God planned that out? 37, 73 kind of helps you remember how to get these right. Hey, Nick, what does Psalm 73 say about these things? So one more time for you guys real quick. 37 tells you what to do when you're in between wicked behavior and judgment. Flip those digits around. Psalm 73 tells you what happens if you don't stand firm in these times. You guys want to hear it? Yes. Psalm 73 starting in 2. And I'm going to read through 5 first. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no strokes. Anybody felt that way before? Oh, yeah. I've been there. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Hey, when you're not standing firm in these times, these are some of the things that can happen to you. Your foot might slip. You might nearly lose your foothold. You might begin to envy the arrogant. You might drown in this envy. It might start to overtake you. Man, we need to continue in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Man. All day long I've been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Stop right there in 16. You know what else can happen? Something that was pure can become vanity. Something that is an amazing morning meant to bless you by God Almighty. It becomes plagued. It becomes a punishment to wake up in your bed every morning and have to face another day. You know, trying to understand all these things, it was oppressive to the psalmist, to Asaph. But, verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. 
Once you enter the sanctuary of God, once you renew your right perspective, you can be free to once again stand with the Lord. Come on. You guys ready to plunge into chapter 12? Man, we're just getting started up in here. Yes. Come on. Are you sure you're ready? Yes. You with us? Yes. You're going to hang on every word of God. You're going to hear it. All right, Linton. They said they're ready. Why don't you read verse (laughs) 1? You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why why does the way of the wicked prosper? Hmm. Why do all the faithless live at ease? Man, does that sound familiar? It does. It's almost as if we read you what you needed to hear prior to getting the verse. Look, I want to tell you up front, you're going to hear volumes of commentary about this. Jeremiah is not challenging God. He works for God. He speaks what God says. Yeah. But he is asking him like a son, I know you're righteous. He begins the verse by saying that. And I don't understand what is going on. Where is the justice? They're wicked. You've pronounced that they're judged. But I still see them running around trying to kill me. So when is their judgment coming? Yeah, I don't believe. I'm not sure what's going on. Help me in my unbelief here, Lord. I know it's coming. But this day as a thousand years thing is running kind of long. When is judgment coming? He's not challenging God. He's trying to understand. Look, Peter speaks about this multiple times. I just want to read you two excerpts. Second Peter 2, 6. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who is distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. See, Peter was a man who understood the Tanakh. He understood that while a city may be condemned, righteous men standing in it would have to bear up under unjust torment. But there was a day coming when judgment would fall, but God was making allowance, looking for the opportunity and saving godly men in the middle of this situation. You remember earlier in Ezekiel, he doesn't long for any man to perish? Well, his judgment will tarry for a while so that he can ensure that he is bringing judgment on those who will not follow him, but those who might he will save in advance. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God will burn you. He absolutely will do it. (laughs) It is not his desire to burn any one of you. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah! God does not want for you to fall under judgment. He doesn't want for your relatives to fall under judgment or your co-workers. What he will do, though, is turn up the heat until every man makes a choice whether to follow him or not. And it will reach a place of finality where there is no turning back. But he's there proclaiming repentance now before the day of vengeance. Let's pick up in two. Listen to verse two, but before Lenten reads it, 
Look what Jeremiah is saying about the people as soon as this verse is read. Yeah. You have planted them, and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You're always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Man, you have planted them, God. They have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. And yet, you're always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Oh my God, you mean to tell me that someone can take root? Someone can grow and actually bear fruit? This is Jeremiah's problem. He's saying, Lord, why haven't you judged them yet? Because it seems like they're growing and bearing fruit, and yet you are always on their lips, but you are totally far from their hearts. Man, I got to tell you, this is in the Peshat. How you identify with co-conspirators. Jeremiah is identifying with them here. He's saying, hey, on the outside, they look like they're growing and bearing fruit. But on the inside, their hearts are far from you, even though they are saying the right things. Man, you have got to get that into your soul. That when you see this in somebody, it is a result of conspiracy against God. Look, as as many people will say, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. They might be able to quote, quote entire passages of the Bible and say the good things they're doing. I bought a Bible the other day, and it's in the same translation that you read, and I noticed this scripture. And yet, if God is far from their hearts, if lordship is not the central focus of their heart, that means they are in conspiracy against God. I want you to get this. Christians, God cannot tolerate sin and when he changes a person's heart into following them him they can't tolerate a single sin either so tell me is it a problem when you see somebody honoring god with their lips and yet they can tolerate sin in their life yes. that is conspiracy and we have to have our eyes open to that because it's going to show us how we relate to our family and to the nations around us look the truth is Jeremiah has the word of the Lord on his lips. But his heart is not far from God. And both the conspirators and Jeremiah are of the same root. They're both in the family of Israel. You mean you can have people who are in the same root and yet have totally different outcomes in their fruit? Yes. But the fact is, God will let the weeds grow long enough He'll let the timing go. He will let the weeds grow long enough so that the wheat does not come up with them whenever they're plucked and pulled. In other words, Jeremiah is not questioning the certainty of the Lord's judgment. And you need to get that. Is everybody awake? Yeah, sometimes we question the certainty of God's judgment. Jeremiah is not. He's just inquiring about the timing. When are you going to do this, Lord? And I want you to get this. This is pretty beautiful. He starts to question this the moment that persecution turns on him personally. The moment that person. See, God's been feeling it this whole time. But the moment that it turns on Jeremiah, he's like, hey, when are you going to judge them, Lord? (laughs) Now, you might see that as fickle and and kind of ridiculous because we do that all the time. But you need to see something beautiful in that. Jeremiah is feeling now what the Lord feels. Yeah. He's now feeling the responsibility of a conspiracy against him. And he is now getting in 
the mind of God. Man, you get into the mind of God, you might feel what he feels tonight. You might actually be asking him the right questions at the altar of instant, incense instead of getting what you want. Come on. But hey, we're going to pick up in verse 3 and we're going to see this develop even more. And tell him before you begin to read 3, at this moment, if you're a little sleepy, it's time to rouse yourself. Amen. Because Woo! we are about to hit an incredible strand of revelation that I promise is a key for many of you right now in yes. this season. It's a key for your success, and it will unlock the rest of your life and the rest of God's promises if you can hear it and put it into practice. Are you guys ready for this? Yes! Let's go with three through five. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked... The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, He will not see what, is, what happens to us. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Okay, now, yes. verses 3 through 4 are very, very interesting. And if you're in Acts chapter 2, it should be very, very very interesting, these two <laughs> verses that you're reading. Yeah. Because Jeremiah, he's talking and he says, hey, the people that are living in the land, they're ruining it. Okay? The, the land, it's going to lie parched because of the uh, actions of this people living on the land. He was not a tree hugger speaking about green friendly products. No, no. we're going to clarify that a little bit for you. The grass is going to wither because of the unrighteous actions of the people in the land. Yeah. All the animals are going to die. Even, even the souls that are on the land that live off of the land, they are going to suffer because of the unrighteous actions of the people. Wow. The man, the land, the plan of God. These three things are all inextricably linked to each other. Yes. And any one of these aspects most definitely affects the other two. You can never separate any of the three of these apart from each other. The men living in the land, the land itself, and God's plan all work together. Yes. Now, before we get into, into verse 5, because I know you guys are ready, we want to set this up for you in a way that walks you through in a linear kind of progression. And, and reminds you about some of the things that we've already studied about Jeremiah's birth, his life up to this point, and his calling. So Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 1 is where we're going to start, and I'm going to read it to you. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. From these verses, we get the revelation that Jeremiah was a priest. You guys remembering this? Yeah. Jeremiah was called... By the age of 20, mm -hmm. Jeremiah lived in the days of Josiah, 
when Israel found the book of the law. And Jeremiah had a profound emphasis on the word of God. More direct quotes from Deuteronomy than any other prophet are found in the book of Jeremiah out of Jeremiah's mouth. We're going to continue to jog your memory a little bit in Jeremiah 15, verses 16 through 17. Jeremiah 15, 16 through 17. When your words came to me, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me, and you filled me with indignation. This is Jeremiah speaking, and he's saying, I ate of your words, and I did not hang out with revelers. I consumed what you gave to me and internalized it. The Lord's hand is on me. So he eats the words, and he can feel God's hand on him. And he's indignant because the priests that he came from, the people that he is around, they had the exact same opportunity and decided not to eat of God's word. Jeremiah denies himself of the things that other so-called men of God consumed. Remember, he comes from a priestly line. And none of them chose to participate in the work of the Lord. And I met many families that had such great potential, and yet only a few chose to follow the Lord. And as this builds in chapter 16, you're going to hear more about Jeremiah's life at this point. You guys starting to to grow in your respect for Jeremiah as a man of God? Hey, imagine the Lord speaking this to you. Then the word of the Lord came to me. You must not marry or have sons or daughters in this place. I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but how many singles would just die if God told that to you? I got to be married. That's what I want, and I'm going to get it. But like Paul, Jeremiah was set apart for and dedicated to the message the Lord had given him. God told him not to marry because Jeremiah was married to the word of God. He wasn't supposed to have these things in life because he was married to the purpose and calling that God gave him. Now, despite his godly uniqueness, because that's pretty unique, isn't it? Yes, Despite his godly uniqueness, Jeremiah's own received him not. They, ought, they should have looked at him and said, man, this guy has a high calling of God on his life. We ought to listen to what he says, yeah. right? Yeah. Wrong. They did not. <laughs> Jeremiah 11, verse 18 through 19 says. Jeremiah 11, 18 through 19, we read earlier tonight, but hear it again in this context. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. The men of Anathoth, they wanted to kill Jeremiah. Why do you think that was? Now, it couldn't have been because they were born in the same place. They might have had a similar priestly call that he did. They grew up in the same neighborhoods. They were exposed to the same things. And yet Jeremiah is standing for righteousness. And they hate it. Because they hate 
his standard. It couldn't have been because of all of that, of course. Hey, you mean to say that Jeremiah took away the excuse, well, it was just the field I was planted in? Nope, Jeremiah's bearing godly fruit and they're bearing thorns and thistles. Just the wow. I was down. <laughs> you see, these very men, they wanted to kill him. But they were the men that you would think were going to support Jeremiah. <laughs> Wouldn't you think that these men would be right by Jeremiah? Like, yeah, we're so proud of you, Jeremiah. We're so happy for the godly call that's on your life. We're so happy for the standard that you have in your life. That's not what was happening. Jeremiah can see it clearly, and he is beginning to handle it in light of God's standard and in a righteous kind of way. And we are going to learn what that looked like tonight. Look, as we read verse 21, you should have the words of Jesus ringing in your ears. Prophet is not received in his own hometown. You should be thinking about David's initial interactions with his brothers. Where Eliab said that he had a wicked heart because the hand of God was on him and he wanted to fight for the Lord. This is verse 21 from the same chapter. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the people of Anathoth who are threatening to kill you, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hands. He didn't say he couldn't quote scripture. He didn't say you couldn't go to church. (laughs) They didn't like that he spoke for God. Wow. And they came from the same place he did. Woo. Oh like every other man of God, the most serious challenges in Jeremiah's life initially. Somebody say initially. initially. Initially means at the beginning, at the very start, the baby step. The most serious challenge in Jeremiah's life came from his own hometown, Anathoth. Those who should have supported him did not. But the more serious challenges are still ahead. He was faced where the people would be hard against his message. He had things ahead of him. There was an entire nation that was called of God but bent on wickedness. This is the proving ground for the rest of Jeremiah's life right here. God is calling it out. We're transitioning from Jeremiah's words to the Lord's. So let's read verse 5 and consider the actual context of what Jeremiah is struggling with, what the footmen might be. Jeremiah 12, 5-6 says, If you have raced with men on foot, and they have worn you out, this refers to his hometown. If the men in your hometown have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? This refers to the rest of the nation that Jeremiah is called to. If you stumble in safe country, man, didn't sound like that was safe country, did it? But apparently, according to what Jeremiah was called to, that was safe. Wow. If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Your relatives, this is the answer, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. Look, there's something that I just want to say, and it's not in our notes. Your calling is always more than what you can see right now in this moment. Your calling always involves more than you can see in this moment. And right now is a training ground for you so you can survive it then. Look, the point is, is that Jeremiah is worn out with dealing with his hometown, his own family, and his wayward friends. And who can blame him? I mean, he wasn't allowed to be married. Did not have the frivolities of youth was not allowed to meddle with the revelers and do all of the things they did. 
Who can blame him for being worn out, right? Well, according to his calling, God can. Because God is asking him, if you are worn out with these interactions, if you're worn out with this ministry I've already given you, then how will you be able to handle the nation, the capital, the priesthood, the princes of Jerusalem that I have called you to preach? The question is essentially this. If you can't handle the footmen of where you're at right now, how can you handle the horsemen of a swan? You know, this harkens us back to the call of Levi in Deuteronomy 33. Oh, come on. You see, Jeremiah was a priest. And as a priest, he came from a stock that learned this. In Deuteronomy 33.9, it says of Levi, he said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but he watched over your word and guarded your covenant. That is how the priesthood came into existence by regarding the word over their own familial ties. That is how they became the priesthood. Now, what we're seeing here tonight is that God is dealing with his own household, Israel. God is able to deal with his own household, and he's the best at it. He's the father. But as he, as he handles his own household, his servants are required to do the same with their own house. As God handles his house, the servants are required to act in the same manner and deal with their own house. You know what that teaches you whenever you handle your own house rightly? It teaches you that when you stand and handle your house rightly, when you stand for God's house, when you uphold his righteous standard, there is something beautiful that happens. Do you want to see it? Yeah. Yeah. That comes out of... Before we go there, everybody look up at me. According to this passage, what the Lord's showing us tonight, the best chance that your family, your old friends, anybody that was in your life before Christ, the best chance that they have of having an interaction with the Lord and coming into discipleship and walking in salvation and finishing well is your hard, fast line of the standard of God, the same line that Jeremiah the prophet took. That's, that's it. The best chance, bar none, period. Be happy to sit down with anybody on that subject, but according to what we're talking about tonight and the scriptures that we've read and the counsel of the Holy Spirit of God that is resting in this room tonight, I know that you can feel that what I'm saying is correct. Yeah. We want to warn you, warn you in this season, warn you as your brothers, as your friends. This is an important season for us. We got big things coming down the pipe. We got big tasks like Jeremiah. We have a swan coming down the pipe. Yeah. The Lord is putting us in a refining type of season and period it's not time to run it's not time to run away and go to what is comfortable we're about to go to jeremiah 32 and we're going to read a passage <laughs> Come on. that is going to give you hope and it is going to revive your soul and make you want to jump up and down but i want to make sure that we come face to face with this reality first yeah we're going to dig into it just a little more so I'm that guy that's been here since I was little. So for those of you that have been here the longest, there's no, you know, 
fake cover that you can put on to hide how things have been over the last decade because I know you. Those of you that your growth could be charted on a heart rate monitor for somebody who is in a nursing home, barely alive, is because you have still not gotten this principle right. We don't need to debate it. There's a wealth of scripture on the subject. You've heard it a hundred times. But you know who you are because you've known me a long time. I'm looking at you. You still have unhealthy relationships with family and with friends that profess the Lord's name and then go on sinning. And the proof of it is that in the time where our church is more motivated than it ever has been, we're watching lives transform, people actually walk in ministry. Like in months, they're being transformed into new marriages, new families. That specific thing will cause you to be chaff that is removed over the coming years. So it doesn't matter if it's family from Amarillo, if it's family from Georgia, wherever it is, we love your family. I love your family. But if you do not stand where God does and you continue to placate, you are a co-conspirator. And your growth will have the same cyclical patterns where you get ground right back down to where you were in your own pitiful, sinful state because you participated in sin with them. We can watch it when husbands start participating in pornography again, when wives are unsubmissive to their husbands because your family is disjointed and broken. Now, that's not the vast majority of you. I'm happy and thankful to say that the majority in this church is prospering and thriving. What I'm saying is a bit brutal, but it's because I've known you since I was little and I care about the outcome of your way of life. And I don't want you to be a distant memory of people who never did anything for the Lord and failed because you didn't get with what was happening all around you. So let it be a warning. It's not coming from me. It's coming from what the Spirit's testifying to in the moment, and I would like to be able to come visit you when we come back from Turkey. I would like to be here in two years, and you'd be praying for my sons because you have a righteous life that can impart a blessing onto others. And that is 100% what God will give you. In fact, He will give you a title deed. Let's go to Jeremiah 32 together. That kind of foundation was necessary for what you're going to learn in Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 6. Say, there when you're there. There. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalun, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth. Because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Amen. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. <laughs> there is a wealth of revelation passage. But in light of what we're talking about tonight, we want to bring about one nugget of revelation about this title deed. What had Jeremiah done with his family up to this point? He had stuck it out. He had preached the gospel. He had stood where the Lord told him to stand. He had opened his mouth when the Lord told him to open his mouth. 
He was a walking, breathing standard of the Word of God. And he was overcoming his fear to do and to preach what God had put on his mind and his heart. He was a walking standard. Come on. Now the Lord tested him time and time again. He tested him through dangers. He tested him through situations. He was testing him through environments. He tested him as family came and visited him. He was testing him, testing him, testing him. And Jeremiah passed the test. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord said, hey, you are going to buy the title deed to Anathoth. Come on. Yeah. You're going to buy the title deed (laughs) to that place that you came from. Come on. Listen to me, church, and listen very, very well. The little thing, the little standard, the little responsibilities that you have now, the little interactions that you have with your family, the little temptations that you have uh, to bend the standard of God when you're talking about people that you feel emotional about, those are the very testings now, the little things that you are going through that will qualify you for the big call that God has on your life. The Lord, while He is looking and watching you succeed, you will get to the point where He looks at you and He says, Hey Nick, now's the time. You've been faithful, my son. I am now going to hand you a title deed to what I am calling you to do. I'm going to give it to you in your hand. It belongs to you because you've been faithful with little. Therefore, I will... Allow you to be faithful with much in my kingdom. Hey, this is that barrier. This is that ancient door that the Lord is beckoning to us to walk through. Get in touch with that ancient door tonight. Hey, if you've been unsuccessful up to this point, then pull in Ezekiel 18 and forget about the previous times and start walking righteously. It's time to get up. And open up your eyes and ears to where we are as a church. The best chance that they have is for you to sit here where God's called you to be. And to preach the standard of God. And when they get hungry, they know where to go. That's the chance that they have. Hey, say hard line. Hard line. This is what Jeremiah did. God spoke to him about everything that he had done previously and said, if you're struggling with that now, how can you run with the horses? And Jeremiah didn't buckle when he heard that from God. No. He didn't buckle when he heard what Nick was saying. Jeremiah drew a hard line where the standard of God was, and he refused to compromise. My friends, that's what you call a boundary line or a boundary stone. You set it where God sets it, and you do not move it, And when you do, the same thing that happened to Jeremiah will happen in you. You might be struggling with it right now, but God can enable you and empower you to run with those horsemen, and then he will give you the title deed. All you have to do is stay where that boundary line says to stay. Amen. Hey, let's uh, pick up in Hebrews 11, verse 1 through 2. I'm going to read it, and Judah's going to expound on it. Now, this is the amplified version, but I want you to hear what it says. Now, faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of the things we hope for. Having the proof 
or being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality, the faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Come on. For by faith, trust, and holy fervor born of faith, the men of old had divine testimony born to them and obtained a good report. Is that not what we want? Yes. You came to a warehouse church because you wanted to live an average social Christian life, right? No. No, we wanted the faith of Abraham, the man who did not waver in his unbelief. Yes. I want the title deed to the kingdom to come. Amen. Saints, now is the day when we learn to put the footmen underneath so that we can run with the horses. Now is the time to possess, possess the faith, to know what is coming as a conviction yes. and to see it brought into reality. Yes. Saints, I want to tell you a truth. I mentioned to you earlier that David, David was mistreated by his brothers. Called him wicked. You know what else happened? When he stood on the ground that God had called him to in a great contest of faith. Yeah. His brothers came to him at the cave of Adullam. So did his father. So did his mother. And they fought to see him established. Fought to see the kingdom of God advanced. You know his own household, Jesus, the son of David, rejected him. And yet after his death, after his painful hard line in the sand, we see his brothers writing Gospels. In fact, even saying so in the epistle, the brother of our Lord. Man, what a title. They did not possess the title deed to who he was then, but they learned it. They learned it through the suffering that he went through. They learned it through the agony that he went through, but not because he bent, but because he would not succumb. Hear me, Rosales brothers. Hold your line. Stand in it. You're an example, and God is blessing it. God is giving us a title deed to things that we cannot see yet. But I remember when we were sitting in a garage with just a few people. Amen, David Hall, my uncle sitting back there. And yet now we see something that we could not then, expanding across the world, across the United States for sure. And it's not because it was a marketing program. It's because we grabbed hold of the faith of Abraham, the faith of old. God is quite clearly saying to Jeremiah, I am going to judge your household. I'm going to judge your hometown. And if you're worried about that, if you can't handle that, how are you going to deal with the nation? How are you going to deal with Jerusalem? Jeremiah, you need to summon the faith that I will do more than what you see in front of you. Because I've called you to run with the horses, not stay where you are. Man, is that a message for this church? We are not called to stay where we are. We have the examples of our elders, our pastors, men like Elder John and Elder Charlie, that are running compared to where they were three years ago. And they were godly then. When we have the faith to stand and overcome the footmen issues and begin to run, you will find Christ and his immeasurable power working in you in a way that you have not in the past. Man, everyone thinks that that's some special calling. That's a pastor. That's an elder. They have something different. No, they just tasted of the real thing. It's time that we drink of that ancient path and drink the old wine of Abraham. There's a title deed that is ours. Look, as we pick up in verse 6, you're going to find, and we're going to move quickly, over 6 to verse 13, both God and Jeremiah are going to draw a hard line in the sand, and they're going to show us how to do it. 
And there is hope at the end of this tunnel. Amen. So follow us with it. Brother Linton, get verse 6. Your brothers and your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. So Jeremiah, this is God speaking to Jeremiah and saying, Your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. They speak well, and yet they're trying to kill you. They say all the right things, but they have your death on their minds. Now that's going to require Jeremiah to do something. It's going to have to require him, dare not say the word, separate from his unclean family. It's going to cause Jeremiah, God forbid, for anyone to have to do this, but, from, but to come out from amongst them. Now, you might think that's harsh for Jeremiah to do, but in verse 7, God's going to do the same thing to his family. Look what verse 7 says. Listen to verse 7. I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love to the hands of her enemies. Hey, God's not asking Jeremiah to do something that he will not himself do. Wow, that's good. The Lord is doing it. The husband is doing it to his bride. The Lord is doing it to his nation. Can you believe that? Have you seen that before? What God is asking Jeremiah to do, he's displaying to Jeremiah before his very eyes. God gives his people to the enemy so that they will turn. To give them a real best chance opportunity at repentance and salvation. God's using affectionate language and it, it, it gives you insight into something. This is not something that's easy for him to do. This is painful for him. Come on. He's watching his people go into exile. He's watching his people get abused and mistreated because of their own disobedience. But he's saying, I cannot bend. I will not move. What more can I do? But let them go their own way and hope that that will drive them back to me and back to a standard and it will cause them to repent and begin to walk in salvation. How can we not follow the path of our Father? Hey, do you remember last week where God says, what else can I do? I will refine them. Well, this is what the refinement looks like in this stage. And what does verse 8 say? My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. All right, come on. Pause for just a minute. His... Inheritance. Somebody say inheritance with me. Is an inheritance something that you despise or that you wait for and you treasure? Now, what kingdom is in context here? It's Israel, but we're specifically speaking to the south. What was the south defined by? The tribe of Judah. What was the standard? What was the blessing of Judah? That they were to be a lion. Read the rest of the verse. He's speaking of his bride in all of her glory and what she was designed by him to be. But because she's taking that design and rebelling against him with it, he's saying, I hate her. Now, saints, I want to tell you, he's not going to hate her forever, but he will surely refine her until her function is performing his purpose. It's because she's roaring at him. But she came from reliable stock, and she has a reliable function. Those of you that we've been hard on this evening, I want to tell you, you do come from reliable stock, and you have a reliable function. But you have to turn. Turn now with what God has given you. Stop wasting your life. 
God has been a good husband. The question is, why is the bride that was designed by God, that is a lion among the forests, acting this way? They were made to be his lion. The Lord put Jeremiah in a situation where he has to do what the Lord is doing. And he understands the difficulty of the situation. Saints, we're not just talking about family. We're talking about friends. We're talking about every area of compromise in your life. It was painful. But where Jeremiah must stand, because it's where the Lord stood, and that was enough for him. Verse 9 and 10. Has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey that other birds of prey surround and attack? Go and gather all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. Do you hear him saying, my vineyard? My field? See, he still takes ownership of these things. He still loves her, and he is left with no choice. See, don't think that just because God loves his inheritance, he won't discipline them or draw the hard line where he needs to. And don't think God will excuse us just because, well, that's my grandmother or that's my nephew. That he'll excuse us either because he did the same thing in his own house. Now here those shepherds, many shepherds will ruin my vineyard. Those shepherds, you'll see this throughout the Tanakh, that shepherds can refer to the leaders of Israel but they're also the leaders of nations. Mm. Shepherds are leaders of nations. Now these shepherds that are coming, they're going to ruin my vineyard and trample down his field. We've heard that before in previous chapters of Jeremiah. That is because this is a cycle of covenant chastisement. This chastisement is being brought by the Lord in cycles according to what the people need. If they still need chastisement, he's not going to stop giving it. But you've got to understand, this doesn't stop with Christ. Just because you're in Christ, God will put you in a cycle of uh, covenant chastisement if that is what is needed. And he will put your family members in that cycle if that's what they need. Don't dare to interrupt that cycle of chastisement. Amen. In fact, Hebrews 12 says he disciplines those he loves the Lord. So if, if anyone's not receiving discipline from the Lord, and this is a fact, if anyone is not receiving discipline, then they are like a fatherless bastard child that doesn't belong to him. You know them by their discipline from the Lord. It is a cycle of covenant chastisement that always exists. Hey, what, what is verse 11? It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Over all the barren heights in the desert, destroyers will swarm. For the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other. No one will be saved. Wow, it says sword of the Lord here in verse 12, but that is speaking about the Gentile nations. The sword of the Lord equals the Gentile nations that are going to come in and have this retribution against God's people. He's going to use, in this time in history, uh, Jeremiah's time, he's going to use a nation that doesn't care because they don't respond to the one who does care. God cares about His people and His land. This is painful for Him. But this must be done. 
This chastisement, this sword that the Lord is utilizing, it's something that has to be done. Let's continue in 13. They will sow wheat, but reap thorns. They will wear themselves out, but gain nothing. So bear the shame of your harvest because of the Lord's fierce anger. Look, I'm going to cover a lot of ground here, but we told you in advance 6 through 13 is the Lord drawing his hard line and Jeremiah drawing it with him. This is all after verse 5 in relation to his own hometown, his own friends, the areas that tempt him to compromise in his life. Matthew 10, 34 is something that we just can't skip. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus drew a hard line, and in his family it eventually produced results. The same happened with David. And you just saw the title deed that was given to Jeremiah. We'll give you a sneak peek into a bunch of chapters ahead. God is drawing a hard line in this room where you get to decide whether you're the co-conspirator or you're Jeremiah who's standing with the Lord. It's really quite that simple. Yeah. The difficulty of this is that we scream on the inside, but I'm supposed to love my family. Yes, yes, you're supposed to love your family. You're supposed to love them as God loves them. Yes. You're supposed to represent him. You're an ambassador of the Lord first before anything else. When you're in your workplace with your coworkers, when you're at home with your children, every area of life we are called to prophesy about him through our actions as well as our words. I want to call your attention to Exodus 19, which we began covering this evening. Among the people who were promised at Sinai, who promised that they would obey the Lord, when they found out the actual cost of obedience and the terms, and the conditions, it was a very narrow remnant of those who had previously responded that were actually married to the great king. We're sitting in a room of many people who bear the name of God, who've pledged the cost of obedience. And I know what happens over decades. What we would like for you to do is contemplate the day of the Lord's favor and the day of the Lord's vengeance and make your lines clear. Where you stand... Come or hell or high water, yeah. we stand with the Lord. Yeah. We've proven that over time. And I want you to prove it true as well. Now, as a huge ray of hope, we're going to close out the chapter 14 through 17. We're going to make a few comments on the way in. But you're going to see full circle God's plan of covenant chastisement and what the end result will produce when men stand with God and his plan. Pick up in 14 and get 15 as well, Brother Linton. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seized the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands, and I will uproot the house of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to his own inheritance oh, come and on. his own country. Amen. Man, after he uproots them, he will again have compassion. It's almost like God can easily graft in again 
the branches that were broken yeah. off. Yeah. See, our God is a God of restoration, and that is always his goal. Hey, read verse 16 through 17. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. What an incredible ending to what we have been studying for the last two hours. What we have been reading about is the sifting of Israel, that covenant that cycle of chastisement that God is bringing upon his nation so that he can sift them and make them holy. This is about the breaking off of individual branches in Israel that are a part of the true vine Israel. The truth is, is that God always promised that he would have a faithful bride in the end. He always promised that and that is never going to become untrue. In fact, Jeremiah and Jesus are proof of that. In John 15, Jesus is saying, I am the vine. I am the holy root. And if anyone is in me, he will bear fruit. You see, that holy root always exists. But you want to know what, what, what that holy root does? That holy root draws a hard line. It draws a hard boundary line. But when that happens, things start to happen. The vine begins to grow. Fruit begins to spring up all around. When Jesus is bearing a hard line, just like Jeremiah is, it begins to change things for the nation. It is the holy root that leads to the salvation of the nation. Now, there's something I, I just want you to get here. In verse, verses 16 through 17, God is telling them what is going to happen. He's saying... That the nations are going to come to Israel and they are going to listen to Israel. Israel's going to teach them the ways of God. I mean, that's astounding, right? Well, the reason that is astounding is in the previous chapters of Jeremiah, God is angry with Israel because they are learning the ways of the nations. They are learning the ways of the nations and the foreign gods, and God is angry about that. But now... God is proclaiming that the nations will learn from the people Israel. Amen. You want to know what is the dividing line between those two things? It's drawing the hard line in the sand. It's the holy root. Men like Jeremiah. Men who are walking on the ancient path. Who are drawing a hard line just like God and Jesus are drawing a hard line in their own family. That drawing the hard line results in something. It results in those around you as well as God drawing a hard line in you. When you begin to draw a hard line all around you in your own home, then those around you will begin to draw a hard line. And then before you know it, a nation draws a hard line and it begins to change the entire nation. And as you do that, as you draw that line between you and your wicked relatives that have no business interacting with you that you have no business interacting with them as you begin to draw those hard standards god will draw a hard line in you that will not bend or move you will begin to see the power of god at work in you being able to accomplish the task that you never thought that you would you will see god putting a forge inside of your soul making you 
able to, to bear up under that refinement of God and you will come out pure gold on the end. Come on. The result is you have to start somewhere, church. You have to start in your own homes. You have to start with your spouses and say, this far and no more. This is the hard line and we will not cross it. This is the standard that God gave us. You have to start with your kids and you have to, you have to start there and you have to say, kids, this is the hard line that God is speaking to us. We will not cross this line or there will be immediate discipline going on. Look, now that we've stirred up an enormous amount of trouble, it's probably best at 9.37 that we turn to the pastors and elders for help. (laughs) We want to say to you, though, as we're ending, purchase for yourself costly materials. No more hay, no more wood, no more stubble. Now is the time that we build something that is lasting. We can harp for hours, and I promise we can do it on years that you have wasted. But honestly, what good is that going to do us? What we need to do is turn and build something that is lasting. And our God is able to help us accomplish such a task. I want to let you know that I am proud of these men. That what they said, we are in complete agreement as as pastors here in this church. It's amazing how the Peshat, the plain, the obvious reading of this passage tonight is pertinent to every family here in this church. I don't know if you caught it, but about 12 minutes ago on the clock, Judah said something that was very important. There's been a lot of important things said, and I want to piece one thing together, and then I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Matt. We're not just talking about your blood relatives. Yeah. There are friends. Don't be surprised if you get a call from someone who used to be a part of this church. Don't be surprised if you get calls from friends that you haven't heard from in many, many days, many, many months, many, many years who are now trying to see if they can get back in good graces with you. It's been a long time, right? I mean, doesn't the time just make whatever was caused wrong just go away? No, no, it does not. Repentance causes an open door. Repentance always causes the open door. The hard line that you have to draw is the only way that they will actually have a chance at the kingdom is if you hold the hard line was the phrase here. Let's put this another way. If you allow the word to sit in judgment over you and you do exactly what the word says. Your family, your friends, your acquaintances, those that are friends that act like family in your life, they are not helped by your sympathy. They are not helped by your kindness. They are helped. They are actually afforded a chance to get right with God when you hold the standard of the word. The men and women in this room who can do that, you will grow in this season. The men and the women in this room that feel offended, that feel wronged by what we are saying, you're not going to be able to grow. And for some of you, it may be the dividing line here in this house, in our house. Christy and I had a former student who treated me like I was her father call us the other day and want us to be proud of her. It was her birthday. You see how the enemy does that? 
Here's what I said. I am so heartbroken at where you stand. You no longer stand with the Lord, and therefore you no longer stand with us. Uh, uh, I will not approve of where you are. My wife will not approve. Our entire family will not approve of you because God does not approve of you. And I love you enough to stand with the truth, and I will never stand anywhere else. Yeah, that's good. Be honest, that was an easy discussion. It was easy. Because we knew in the moment we were either going to stand with the Lord or we were going to be sympathetic to someone who did not need it to help her. I actually wanted to help her, so I held the line. Amen. There are many of these things that are going around in our circles. If you haven't yet got there, do not be surprised in the next few days if you get a chance to enact what we're teaching you tonight. Yeah. It's kindness. It is righteousness for you to stand with the Lord against all others so that they might have an opportunity because they know where they can go. We're all sitting here uh, gathered in this room because we agreed to a ketuvah. We agreed to a contract. We said yes before we knew the terms of how it would play out. We said yes to denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him, despite the cost, because there was no cost that can compare with the ketubah. What the guys so eloquently taught on tonight, what Pastor just shared from his own experience, and what we have been standing and living on for decades that has built this house, is the very fact is that the contract is our starting point. It is the definition of our hard line. We point our lost relatives, friends, and particularly those who say they're in the kingdom but are compromisers of the kingdom, and we point them back to the same contract that brought us life-giving, resurrection, born-again power. You were not born again and resurrected because of sympathies for your sin. Uh And neither will they. The greatest hope that they have is the same contract that you said yes to. So let's stand to our feet. Costly stones are gathered from costly experiences. Man, what a precious statement. You know what we're doing whenever we're holding to the ketuvah? Standing within the boundaries of the hard-drawn line of God's kingdom is that we get to wake up tomorrow morning, put a big smile on our face and say, Lord, I want some more costly stones. I want some more gold and silver refined in the fire. I want some more opportunities to draw a hard line, exercise my spiritual legs, running with the men of my own household so I can learn how to run with the horses in the nations. Do you want to impact the kingdom? Yes. Do you want to see the lost saved? Yes. Then right now as we pray, let's submit our all, even unto death, to that contract that we said yes to. Mighty God, we give you our whole lives. We say yes to your ketubah. We say yes to your lordship. We say yes to your kingdom at work within us and to hell with our own lives. 
We don't give a damn for our own lives in comparison with who you are. You paid for us. You bought us. You brought us into covenant with you. And we want to bring those that are outside into covenant with us and with you. Lord, we love you and we celebrate the goodness of your word and your covenant that's alive inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.